You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. So my guest today is Ryan Spahn. Ryan is an actor, writer, and producer who we pretty much met because of Juilliard. I'm trying to remember to back to when we first met for the very first time. But he went to Juilliard a few years after I graduated. We did not overlap there. We might have met first through his partner, Michael Yuri, who's also a Juilliard grad. But we've kept in touch uh, since he got out of school. And I just really enjoy his company and admire the way he always has several different projects going, um, whether it's writing his new screenplay or play or his acting projects. So I was delighted when he came over last week to have this conversation, but first he came to meet the baby and we had dinner with Frankie and then we recorded the podcast at the end of the night, uh, which was definitely past both of our bedtimes. So you might catch us a little bit on the loopy side in this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing with me, Ryan, and I hope you all enjoy the 135th episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Uh, I don't know if I have successfully figured that out. I Being in my relationship has really helped, and it has helped me to um, try to pinpoint what it is about being an artist that causes me sometimes to go to a dark place. And I think often, sometimes I wonder if, if I was in any field would that still happen? Right. Because I think there's something about, at least the way I'm chemically made, that I'm prone to certain dark thoughts or dark feelings or dark reactions to things. And so as I've gotten older, I've tried really hard to be uh, kinder to myself and try to understand what it is about my brain or the way I feel or react to something that is causing me to feel a certain way and divorcing it from being a result of being an artist if that makes sense yeah. because I think like something that recently I've been thinking a lot about is that I've I set like I don't struggle with um, jealousy in the traditional sense or comparing myself to others in the traditional sense I struggle the most with something that I've thought about a lot recently is that I do I set markers that are kind of irrational of like, like where you should be. Yeah, like if I, if like, you know, I don't know, something as simple as like, if I was nominated for a theater award, maybe then I could have an audition for the roundabout. Oh, this is theater award season. I didn't get nominated for anything. I will have another year before I have an opportunity to audition for the roundabout. These are the things that I think about in a way that is not helpful and lives under, I think, the category of comparing and jealousy but I think it's more about me placing markers that are just irrational does that make sense yeah because it's really nothing that has anything to do with the work you're doing like you can't go into a rehearsal process being like my objective is to get an award (laughs) sure that was just an example that's not actually (laughs) but things that are like that that's like it's not about 
it's a it's it's yeah there's like a result that i have placed on something that like if some if x happens then xxx right. will happen which isn't the way it works and isn't true necessarily and i think that that is something that i have spent a lot of time thinking about so in answer to the actual bigger question of how do i not go to the dark place is i try really hard to figure out what would spiral me down and try to figure out exactly what i'm doing to cause myself to let me let me take that step that sends me to a dark place and try to refrain from making that step and do you feel like you've had some success in just like the awareness yeah being able to like pause and move in a different direction when you have those thoughts it's i'm literally been trying to reprogram my emotional reaction to things and how i how i uh how i internalize them i guess that's awesome that you're at the point where you're aware of it. <laughs> I do. Because sometimes it's hard to even articulate what you're doing. Yeah. And we were talking about this earlier about how, you know, I personally have struggles with depression and I, I um, have been aware of the fact that I sometimes like to wallow in that and I feel very comfortable in that. And I think that that is just not helpful at all, especially in the field that we're in. Right. You know? I've dealt with that a little bit, and I feel like it almost gets to a point where you feel like you're doing something. It's like oh, it's, at least it's, it's active, active somehow. Yeah. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, because it's deeply introspective, um, depression can be. So you're like psychoanalyzing everything. So there's something about that that is super active and is very um, stimulating because you're really like unpacking a lot of deep, 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 deep thoughts that. I don't know if we necessarily need to if they're not actually a part of our day-to-day life. <laughs> There's this great play that I did in school. I, we went to Julia. We both went to Juilliard. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know who, who we are. <laughs> uh, but my final year of school it was a play by Amy Herzog named The Great God Pan and it's a play about a guy in the scene. It's like I think like six or eight two-person scenes more or less. And in the first scene, it's two old friends who were never really friends beyond the elementary school years. And one is very conservative and one has gone sort of like more eccentric and like funky. And they just are like oil and water when you meet them. Mm-hmm. And the uh, one that's gotten less conservative is like, dude, I just want you to know when we were younger, my dad molested me and I'm pretty sure he molested you will you stand in court with me and testify? And the more conservative guy is like, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't. That didn't happen. And so then the next series of scenes is you watching this guy, the, the conservative guy, who it, he clearly was. Hmm. And you see the patterns of it in all of his relationships. So then you're wondering, does... Is he better to have not known that information? Or is he better to have known it? Right. And so sometimes I think when we spiral too deep into our thoughts, I have found that it's like, I don't know if I need to know this. I don't mm-hmm. know if I need to know, be thinking about this as deeply as I'm thinking about it. I wonder if it's one of those things 
kind of kind of like we go through an acting training where <laughs> it's about like analyzing so much and going so deep into it so you can eventually throw it away oh yeah good luck throwing you know? it away but then how do you throw when it away when, when you're really dealing with like <laughs> yeah. your shit yeah yeah, yeah I, I mean know. and you know at least if you're lucky enough to be an actor as your full-time job 60% or more of the year is spent sitting alone at home right you know and so your mind just is left to create a lot yeah and so I've also like practically I, I, I started I started becoming a writer so I write a lot and I started in my early 20s writing pretty regularly and and that has helped me keep me out of my head or I have learned from other people to really set up a really um, f- full week socially to get me out of my house, to get me around people, signing up for, you know, the 52nd Street Project or things like that where you can get yourself among other people who are probably struggling with the same thing you are and just you're not talking about it. And then you end up in an environment where you can totally focus all your energy on something outside of yourself. Yeah. Um, so when did you first, how did you first get into writing? First got into writing because I read a Julia Cameron book called The Artist's Way. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I honestly forgot, forgot in that moment that you had mentioned to that uh, because you have to it me your, earlier. You yeah. have it on your bookshelf. You saw it um, on my bookshelf. <laughs> but I, luckily, since having a baby, I have no memory. And so I completely forgot that you my told me that. My name is Ryan. <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> I... Oh. I l- but how did you find it? How did you just... I'm trying to remember who told me to look at it. Because the early 20s, you had gone to... Quick history of Ryan. You had gone to Interlochen Arts Academy for high school. Correct. And then, not undergrad, you just moved to LA. Yeah, when I was 17, I moved from Interlochen. I went back to Detroit, which is where that area is where I'm from. And mm-hmm. then I moved like months later... I drove cross country, moved to LA, and lived there till I was twenty-seven. Right, and then eventually you went to Juilliard when you were twenty-nine. Much is later. When I started, yeah. yeah. So, when you started writing, mm-hmm. yeah, what brought it all around? I feel like it was my friendship with uh, Kristen Hangy, who was a director in the city, but we were living in LA at the time, and I feel like she told me about it. But I initially started writing. The first thing I ever wrote with anyone was a little bit pre that book. And it was because I had met this person named Salome Malagetta. She's Ethiopian. She wanted to be a movie star and wanted to start a movie and create a movie. We both had no idea what we were doing. We met through a mutual friend and we just started writing together. And then I would read screenwriting books. And then I I joined a screenwriting class in Santa Monica. And then... Kristen started helping us with like the structure of it because she actually went to college for screenwriting. And during that process, I opened Julia Cameron's book. And then that got me like actively writing and understanding like why I want to do it aside from like the practical side of it, like making it actually work, why I, why I wanted to write myself. Has it always taken the form of scripts? It was like screenplays for a while, and then I, you know, 
I wrote those for probably like seven or eight years. And then during my time at Interlochen, the three that I had written and spent a lot of years trying to get made all got made every break during my time at school, which was bizarre the way that that worked out. So like I'm in my training at college and then prepping these movies during the workload that you know we all have. <laughs> during the busiest time during of your life. During the busiest time of my life, I'm like also sending emails about like budgets and you know casting and I feel like that time could really fuel you though because you're already like running on 10 cylinders or whatever yeah you just have to keep going yeah well yeah I mean it's a weird adrenaline I'm so much better at everything when I have everything happening at the same time right exactly if one thing is driving my life it's gonna just fall apart not really but like you know, but it's the same thing like, like say an audition, if you obsess on it, it's just going to like, you're going to freak out in the room. But if you right. have like many things happening, it might just accidentally go fantastic. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, that is usually how it works out. Yeah. <laughs> but then we're supposed to somehow make it a science so we can recreate that every time. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. 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 Oh. I was telling you before I need to revisit the artist's way. That's awesome that it really worked for you to like kickstart something. It just worked because it, I also, I say this and no judgment to the book. I didn't feel like the book was actually a challenging piece of material to work on. It just was like what I needed at that moment. Right. It just created a practice and for it you. created a practice and also gave me permission to be uh, validated that I'm capable. Right. You know, that you don't have to have somebody give you permission to do this. What did your family think of you moving to L.A.? Uh, well, I when I was 14, I called Juilliard and was like, I'm going to go to your school one day. <laughs> Which is bizarre. Because I had read that like Robin Williams went there. And uh, they said that I should go to Interlochen for art school that's how I found Interlochen and so I wow. ended up going to Interlochen for three years and so by that point when I was told my parents I was going to LA I had been out of the house for three years already living okay. at this boarding school so they sort of were like great because that you know I don't I don't know deeply what they thought I'm sure there was a lot of fear but there's probably a lot of pride too because I had done this whole boarding school experience completely on my own like they didn't pay for it I worked a lot of jobs, fundraised, did things like that to pay for school. Right. Um, and no one else in your family is uh, creatively minded? My mom was when she was younger. She was in one of the original tours of the Fantastics. Really? Playing the female character. She was the understudy, and then that person broke their leg accidentally. <laughs> and she took over the role. <laughs> uh, and then she stopped just to raise a family and was not to raise a family. She's just like, I don't want this lifestyle. I want to be a mother. And so she stopped and then had kids and raised the family. And so she sang a lot in the church choir and, you know, still to this day walks around speaking in accents. <laughs> which, um, 
is really not annoying at all. <laughs> it's <laughs> do they do they get a chance to see a lot of your work? Yeah, they have. Since you left home, my parents are divorced, and so and now remarried, and or not now, but they were they've been remarried for like twenty years. They the the two couples will come to try to see stuff. My dad and my stepmom tend to come more just because they love coming to New York. Mm. And my mom and my stepfather, my mom comes by herself. My stepfather isn't a big traveler, so he actually hasn't seen a lot. But I also do a lot of plays where I'm in peril as a character, like either a gun is in my face or I'm dying on stage or pretty consistently. And so... My mom has gotten to the point where she's like, I need to know if this is one of those plays because I don't know if I can do it again. That is unbelievably sweet. It is. <laughs> and also, like, it's not about you, mom. <laughs> Come see my play. <laughs> I'll make <Michael>, you. <laughs> I remember in undergrad, we did Othello and I played Desdemona and a bunch it's of... Othello? Uh, Othello. <laughs> Othello. Um, and a bunch of my like close friends from high school came down whose parents were like my parents growing up and one of my friend's dads afterwards was like if you had been on if he had had held that pillow over your face five more seconds i was gonna run on stage oh, and pull it out. i was like oh so sweet that's very sweet very sweet i'm glad it didn't happen i'm very very sweet i'm kind of wish it did that would have been like <laughs> own play it's gonna save me um, so what did you think about LA? Do you ever think about what role does, um, location play for you now? Do you ever think about moving back to LA? Are you feeling pretty attached to New York? I'm definitely feeling attached to New York, LA. Um, since you have the unusual experience of really, really having lived in both places. I have deep, deep friendship with people deep friendships with certain people and who currently live in Los Angeles. So there's that side of it that I deep, the people that I miss. So, you know, two weeks ago or last week, we were in LA for like 10 days and I was busy all day long seeing all these people I hadn't seen in a long time. So I love LA when there's a date where I'm leaving it. Right. I think, I have no interest in living there just to live there. I think I would enjoy it if I had a job that was keeping me there again, where it had like a end date and then I could leave it. I, I, I feel like LA feels like what a lot of people think hometown feels like because I don't have that feeling about Michigan because I went, I, I went, I was until eighth grade and then I went to this boarding school. And so my home life, hometown experience is sort of all over the place. And then when I moved to LA, being there at 17 and sort of having my college experience be real life experience, that feels like going back home. And so when I go to LA, I get that sort of anxiety of, oh, I just need to get out of hometown. <laughs> Been here long enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like every street has a memory. I was there before smartphones, so I learned my way around by like a Thomas guide, which is this old map that was 7,000 pages long. So now when I go back, I don't, I know the city so well. I can drive mm -hmm. everywhere without much thought. 
And so there's something about that that's really nice. I just love New York. I just love New York. I really do. Can we talk about why you decided to go back to school and to go to Juilliard in your late 20s? Mm-hmm. Or like what it was about your life in LA leading up to that that led to that decision. So when I was about twenty five or twenty six, I was in LA and I was a at that point I was a waiter, but I was had a really active commercial acting life. So mm-hmm. I actually was making a lot of money being a commercial actor, but I couldn't quit my job for whatever reason because the money was so good. Also waiting tables, and I only worked fifteen hours a week, and I. And then I just had this like moment where I saw this being my life until I'm 50. And mm. I started then putting myself up for regional theater jobs and like really like actively pursuing getting out of LA and like doing theater. Cause I was doing a lot of theater in LA, which was wonderful and amazing for me, but no one goes to see it. Is it mostly, it's like small storefront theaters out there, except for the Yeah, it's very large... similar to like Chicago yeah. storefront theater, but it, um, but it, the community is so great. Anyone who's into theater who moves to LA will have a rewarding theater experience if they want it. They're, it just, it only, it's completely insular, unlike in New York, which is a shame. Anyway, so then I started doing regional theater and then that made me realize I don't want to be living in LA anymore. I want to move to New York. I quit my waiting tables job. I moved to New York. And then I started to try to get into the New York theater scene, which is hard to do. It's really hard to, to crack that. And I would go on these, I would go on like the equity open calls. I would go online and like find all the like castings that are listed and like look at all the names and Mm -hmm. just start googling those names and finding emails and being like hey i'm this person i just moved what you're supposed to do she's supposed to do and (laughs) and it's what i it's how i worked like i got many jobs out of that when i first moved to new york some of them were really like well-paid jobs and it was because i was aggressively hunting for it but then I would also get recommended for things, which is at once a great thing, but it's also a dangerous thing because if the people don't know you, they might be only taking the recommendation as a favor. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I had entered a period of time where I was going to these rooms where I was a lot of favors. And I didn't know that. Mm. And the feeling from the other side of the table when you are the favor of somebody else is there's nothing there's nothing worse than that it's so upsetting it's like that moment when you're in a relationship and you realize oh this person is not as in love with me as i am with them and like they lied to me that feeling it's it lives somewhere in there and i went home one day and was so upset and michael who's my partner he didn't know what to do and so he filled out my application to Juilliard which is how I ended up at Juilliard the next morning I woke up and he's like listen I don't know how to help you I don't know what to say but this school changed my life so you should audition so you didn't audition anywhere else Mm-mm. I did my essays and then I showed up and I was 
actually in a play during the call during the auditions and I didn't know that <clears throat> I didn't know how it worked because I honestly didn't like read much about it mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize that you auditioned and then if you got called back you had to stay the rest of the day but I had a show at 8 that night so I had to pull them all aside and was like I gotta go like I can't finish this I hadn't done my interview they like right. bumped up my like monologue presentation thing that you do at your callback there's something you do where you like go in one right, you right, read right, right, your right. monologue and then I went and did my play and then like a week later I had to come back in and do an interview and then we had the callback weekend and then that's and then I ended up going to Juilliard what a life change <laughs> crazy life change at that point in your life like because I went right after undergrad so I was kind of still in that school mode so you were like 22 or 23 ish yeah 22 yeah i was 20 i was 29 when i got in i think by the time school began i had just turned 30 yeah but how how was that to kind of go from no structure to all structure all the time well i was desperate for structure (laughs) that's what you wanted i think that i didn't i didn't know that that's what i wanted but i realized i I did want this i wanted someone to check me in i wanted somebody to care that i was there i had had like a decade of while i was living off of what i was doing it was i mean i'd said earlier about like if you're lucky you're like 60 percent of your day is free or whatever i was working like three days a year right with commercials with commercials but making enough to like survive and it was like and then i was doing these plays that no one was seeing it was just like it was yeah it was a lot (laughs) so when i went to school and it was like nine to nine to eleven every day and really getting to dive into what you love yeah and my partner had gone there and so he knew what i was going through so it made like our relationship nothing but remarkably it was never challenged during that time because we also had the luxury of living very close to campus so I never had that like hour-long commute before and after school and because he was alum he could come to everything so he could participate in the whole like experience of it yeah in a way that I think a lot of couples can't survive a school situation because they don't have that connection right um, we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but how, how have you and Michael kind of dealt with the fact that you're both artists in your relationship over the years? So you're both actors. We're both actors. He, it's been helpful because he is, we're very different. Right. So that's helpful. We, if somebody wants him, they're most likely not going to want me regardless of where we are in our careers. Right. You're not going out for the same auditions. Yeah. We're, I mean, we might just because unfortunately if you're gay, you're all lumped into the same category and like, right. But if they want a Michael type, they're not going to go with a Ryan in most cases is so that's helped, but it's also been because his career is at a very different place than mine. We're just not ever on the same trajectory. And so it's been pretty easy. It's been easy because we both um, care so much about the other person's happiness. And like, 
he, we, we were recently up at Interlock and this past weekend revisiting my school and we got mm-hmm. to speak to the kids and Michael did not go there, but we went together and because he's been on television, I knew that they would be excited because they probably would recognize him. And so we spoke on a panel to all of the current students and this, this conversation came up, which was remarkably um, poised for a 10th grader to wonder how a couple stays together when right. they're both in the field. <laughs> when I'm like, you're in 10th grade. How <laughs> How dare you say field? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, something he said that I found to be very true is that if you, if the success of your partner doesn't give you tremendous joy, then something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that is something that we never had to. Um, and then when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like, we've been together almost 11 years and I've never I might like you know because if his if he has an explosion of something I might have a feeling related to the field that we're in and wanting like you know wanting certain things but it's never about jealousy with him or comparing with him or any of those kinds of things it's and I think part of it too is because one of my dear friends early on when I was like 19 in LA, she was 19. I was like 20. She started to become very successful. And so I had to, at an early age, know how to handle that. I think that has helped actually preserve me in an older age in relationships with friends and loved ones who have varying levels of success when it's very hard to not like spiral. Right. Just keep your eyes on your own page. There's that, but it, yeah, it's also just like, yeah, it's also like, you know, you got to follow, follow the green lights that are in front of you. And those are not going to be the same for everyone else. And right. Also something that's so true is like, if you didn't get it, it's be- if you can get the job or whatever, it's because it wasn't your job to have. Like it just wasn't, you, you know, there's nothing you could have done to make that to have changed. You know what I mean? Like, there's literally nothing. Hmm. Which is hard to remember and hard to think about. And I think all of those things have helped us be a very healthy home. And we have a dog and a cat, and that helps. We also talk and check in with each other almost um, excessively. I'm sure you've had to spend some, some big chunks of time apart. We have, but that's also been good for us. Like, you know, a couple weeks off where we just are out of the home together. Like, we're not in the same building. and We're, like, in different areas, different cities or something. But still communicating on a daily basis, but not, like, in each other's face has been helpful for, like, the pining aspect of relationships, which can kind of go stagnant if you're just staring at each other all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I know with your writing, um, and you were mentioning the films that you uh, made during the summers at Juilliard, mm-hmm. like you have several people that you've collaborated with over and over again, mm-hmm. particularly your friend Haley. Hallie. 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 I'm Hallie. sorry. It's okay. Friend. Hallie Pfeiffer. I told yeah. you I was going to turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> um, your friend Hallie. And that started before you went to Juilliard, right? Hallie and I met 
at uh, I was doing a play in, in Martha's Vineyard and she and her mother waited for me in the lobby after the after the um, show to introduce themselves and Hallie and I became friends that way and then we started when I moved to New York I sort of forced myself on her as a friend I like wouldn't let it go and we decided to write something together and that's how our friendship began and then when that movie was completed we then like a year later made a web series together and what's your like what's your style of writing together what does that well, look like well we haven't like? written together since that since then those were the two things we did together because then she had always been a playwright and her plays started to get produced and then that pulled her down the path of being staffed on television shows and being like pulled to Los Angeles and having a super successful playwriting career in addition to this television career and she's also an actor so Mm -hmm. we stopped writing together we worked together for about three years and then that stopped okay which I loved doing it we both still talk about day a day in which we'll do it again but the process is with other people I've collaborated with in addition to her is you cannot be sensitive if someone doesn't like your idea that's the thing I learned the quickest is like I may come in with a super strong idea and I think I'm like the smartest person ever and I'll deliver that idea and she'll look at me like I've never you know (laughs) done anything until smart in my life and and you can't be sensitive to that because you have to be open to the fact that like I hear a baby. Baby cries. Um, There's a baby in the house. (laughs) You just have to be open to the smartest idea in the room when you're collaborating. And that is often not going to be yours. Would you guys kind of go away and each work on something and then come back together? We would never do that. Would you always like... We'd always sit. Somebody's on the laptop, someone's just talking and you're just figuring it out together. We usually would sit side by side and try to make each other laugh. And then whatever, like, laughed is what went down. And then we often, the the second time around, we actually sort of more plotted out what the episodes okay. were going to be. When we were writing the film, this film is called He's Way More Famous Than You, and it's sort of a meta mockumentary. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of writing this, like, fictitious story in which we play, we play brother and sister in the movie, and we're trying to get a movie made which is actually what you're doing and sort of the shenanigans that happen in, in doing that. And right. that was more just, we were, we just would write as we went. We didn't plan anything out, but it's a big thing. It's just, you cannot be too sensitive if somebody critiques your idea when you're collaborating, you've got to be open to being wrong, letting it go, letting it go quickly and being wrong. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the self-producing aspect of this, all the work that you do? Mm-hmm. It just seems like such a big job. Like, how do you yeah. go about getting something off the ground? Well, Finding those collaborators who are maybe either going to take that part of it off your plate or who are going to let you focus on the creative aspect. It sort of lives in the same place as collaborating with your writers. You cannot be, you cannot, you have to relinquish control and you have to reach out to people that you know do something better than you. Mm -hmm. So like, for instance, he's way more famous than you. We wrote the 
we wrote the script and then I had a friend in LA who had a film production company that I knew he had done a few things. And so I sent it to him to read and he responded to it. And then he was able to get the first like chunk of financing through his connection. So I don't know how he did that, but then for the next film, I had developed a relationship with those people. So I went, reached out to them around that guy not right, right. not without his permission he just wasn't working on this project i went to them directly and so it's sort of like in the acting field it's like most jobs you do are from people that know you or you worked on something with which is why again you have to sort of go back to that following of the green lights because the people you work with are the people who are going to work with you again but if you're not working even in any capacity you're not meeting these people that may go on to be whatever to you later on that you're not aware of right and i think that that's true with filmmaking you've got to always just talk about your project show it to people reach out communicate be open to just sending it to everyone asking for help set a set a date be like June of 2020 we're gonna start filming this and just like drive towards that because things just like come to get like you it's sort of like what we said earlier about like keeping a lot of balls in the air and things just sort of land where they need to land it's in the same place as that do you are you ever in a place where you're like we talked about the dark side earlier where you're feeling like you don't want to put yourself out there anymore you don't want to keep reaching out you don't want to keep <laughs> the balls yeah i mean that's where i'm at to shut down <laughs> that's what i mean we did these three or you know i did them with different people but i so i did three films and then i i did a web series and then yeah i mean the dark side of me will go down the path of like and none of them got me a tv show right to the next level yeah no, i'm not i didn't set like you know I, I i i sold a pilot idea to warner brothers but it didn't sell to network so then therefore it's done and or like I'm not the star of a TV show because of the film being up at, you know, in, in Park City. Like, there, you know, there's so many things that I can spiral on. And it's just, you have to actively not do it. Because you don't, there's no formula to, like, my career is now the last, you know, 10 or 15 years of things that I've done equal my career but there is definitely not one thing that like catapulted me, mm-hmm. which I think is what we're a lot of people are looking for and hoping for is this one definable thing and everything is post that. Right. And their lives changed. That's what people I think are hungry for, that lottery ticket thing, the lottery ticket element. Of no, this. and that's, that's what people applaud too. Yeah. That's what people sit up to. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So you just have to make yourself keep reaching out and not. Yeah, not it sort of actually down. gets to what you uh, you touched on this quickly earlier, and I, we didn't talk about it. Is like, what was it like to go to school later? Mm-hmm. And I remember something that was hard to swallow at at Juilliard was when you're th- in your thirties, or and and you and it's sort of related to what you just said of what people applaud. Teachers, a lot of them get into teaching because they want to see their work explode through a student and right in front of them. And many of the younger students would have these giant leaps right. and like, emo- right. like they're going through everything and they would just like, 
they, they did things you didn't know they were capable of and you're just blown away. And so much of that I had already gone through. Right. They're starting from a different place. Yeah. And so when my, my growth was more incremental for the most part, or like, you know, it was hard to put your finger on it. So I felt like sometimes the teachers weren't as interested in me, Hmm. which is, I think also the hard part of when you're a slow and steady, you know, middle-class actor, you feel like no one's paying attention to you because no, you've never like popped in a way that makes everyone pay attention and you can feel it. And then you're like, okay, this is that moment. Now this has happened. People are paying attention to me and I can feel it. And right. I, I, that's never happened to me. And I don't, I can't be certain that it will ever happen. You know, it may never happen. It might just be the slow thing until I cease. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty darn amazing actually like just even to be m- making your living as an artist it persisting is, and creating constantly like that's yeah it, it is that's it, a pretty good creative life you have there it is but it, it is for sure but it is it's definitely um not enough and you can yeah. i can feel that pulsating through me and i have to right. stop myself from letting it destroy me because it, because even the people that I know who have multi-million dollar films where they're being paid multi-millions of dollars to be in them have very similar feelings about the things that they aspire to beyond that. Right. Which is interesting to, because we know people like that as well, and it's interesting to kind of know that it's never going to make you happier. No, I think it's just a part of... that's an easy thing to think. Yeah, I think it's a part of your original question of how do you go from the dark side. I think it's like accepting that this is just a part of what we do. This sort of this sort of feeling is, a, is so a part of this field that you have to just accept it. You cannot fight it because if you fight it, I don't know if it... I don't... I think if the acceptance part of it and the breathing through it and the like realizing at any stage this is going to be a thing that pops up for me has made it easier because of the people I know who are tremendously on paper, more successful are talking about very similar things that I'm talking Mm. about when I have what I have. Right. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Are there any lessons you've learned in the last couple years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? <clears throat> well, one is definitely something I talked about earlier, which is the markers that I set for myself that I mm-hmm. don't want to do that anymore. Um, I definitely had a period when I got out of school where I had, because <clears throat> I'm like five years out of school, I think at this point. Um, I don't know why I looked at you as if you'd have any, I, I asked that in a way <laughs> I'm about that to hit 10 years. I, was, so. <laughs> I would ask that in a way that you'd be like, yes, you are. That is correct. I guess that would make sense since we didn't overlap. Yeah. So what you were what? Group I was what? group 38. Okay. Yeah. I was 43. So that would make sense. Um, 
I, when I was in school, I started to realize that when I was anxious or frustrated, I would drink alcohol because I was trying to like relax out of it. Mm-hmm. And then when I got out of school, I would have a glass of wine and that anxiety of school would like course through me. And I took four years off of drinking, which was the length of school. So no, not that, I mean, I'm not a huge drinker, but, and I like, but I like to drink and I just didn't like that. It was, I could feel that it was affecting my, um, joy, my day-to-day joy. And so it was was the cup because of the negative association. So then I stopped and now if I have a drink, it's, I can just enjoy it as this social thing that I'm doing or this like relaxing thing that I'm doing and I don't have that anxiety. So that was something I learned that I really fought really hard with myself to like four years, a long time. get over the four years of this. I mean, you, you know, that school's so hard. Yeah. It takes sort of the length <laughs> of the relationship to get over the relationship. <laughs> um, I've also learned that I'm, you know, with things like auditioning, I have a, sometimes have a hard time with it. And I found such joy and, um, creative, uh, fulfillment in making self tapes mm-hmm. and making them feel like I'm shooting a scene or like really getting into it. So I've now made a concerted effort to always request if I can do that as, as opposed to going into the room when it's an initial, um, pre-screen. Right. Because I feel like I can, you know, the the odds of things working out the way you want them to are so, like, up in the air anyway. I might as well get something that's such, get that I get such joy out of. I love that you use, use the word joy. Because so well, often it can, even if it, if it, you do like it better than going in the room, it can still be, like, a stressful, oh, my God, I have to get this done in this amount of time. Well, because I'm now trying to think of it more and more, like, how do, how do I make it feel like a film that I'm shooting? How do I make yeah. it feel like a scene that I'm filming? Like, if, if we were doing this podcast as an audition, setting it up like this, mm-hmm. which is, like two mics on books and like it, it just the whole f- setting just so you feel like it's happening instead of just the blank wall instead of a blank wall you. and you know there's something about that that even if nothing comes from it i just think often nothing comes from an audition that's just the nature of auditioning and so at least you don't have to leave feeling upset right do you have any artistic mentors that have been important to you yeah uh Reed Burney. Yeah. He has been a tremendous mentor to me. Um, and I know he was in the web series you made. When did you That's first when I sort of together? got to know him the most. I knew about him, uh, you know, just socially and very peripherally. But then I got to know him during that. And then I did a play. He's so amazing. He's the best. <laughs> because he also is just a... Um, he's gone through some really hard times Mm -hmm. and his perspective and insight into that is remarkable. And because he's raised a family and has children, he has this incredible paternal quality that, um, is married in there with this struggle with the 30 years of it being a very difficult career. It's, it's just, he's just a great person to talk to. So like if I'm having, struggles i'll text him or call him or we'll go out to eat or something but when i I did a play called gloria at the vineyard theater and he 
I asked him to come to my opening and we weren't that close yet, but I just wanted him to see it and be a, I, cause I was, I liked him. And then from that day on our friendship just sort of took a turn where we like started to hang out pretty regularly and communicate and be friends. And so he's a big mentor. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I haven't actually had a lot of mentors. It was something I wanted. Just curious. What are you most excited about right now as far as projects or things you're hoping to work on? Or... I'm starting a workshop next week with a play that I really like and I really like the playwright and I, it's going to be a lot of fun and it's a two week long thing and I am hoping that that goes really well because I really respond to the material that you just never know what, you know, it's a new thing. I don't know what's going to happen. So that is pretty cool. And then at the end of May, a play I did at Williamstown two years ago, most is finally coming to the city and like, you know, half the cast is able to still do it. So it's going to be really fun to get back in the room with, you know, yeah, two years. Jeez. It's a pretty long time. It was because they programmed it upon seeing it at Williamstown, but the math of like, it was like the top of the season <laughs> and this is programmed at the end of this next season. So that's actually like mm. a full two years, but it's going to be fun to get back into that because it's such a crazy play and super funny and wonderful. And, and then I wrote a play that is going to have, uh, be a part of the pride plays festival, which is happening at oh, the rattlestick. Nice. And so this will be read on, I think, June 24th. And and is that just like a week long? It's like a five, I think, believe five days of 10 to 14 readings. Okay. But they're all... Um, I want to find a way to see something. Oh, please. Well, come, come to mind. Uh, <laughs> they're all like... Not yours. <laughs> yeah. They're all queer, LGBTQI identifying artists. That's in awesome. a, who all of them as writers and then the content as well and so like a lot of the people like a lot of the directors are a lot of the actors will be and it's just sort of putting everyone um forward who are a part of these experiences at different you know stages of the decades as lgbt theater has has like grown over the past you know post stonewall it's in it's in honor of the anniversary of the 50th year of stonewall right, right. 50th anniversary of stonewall 50th year 50th anniversary <laughs> it's weird to call it an anniversary um, well that's exciting yeah so I'm excited about that because this will be the first time this play is read out loud at all at a, well I mean around my apartment but in a public way yeah and it's a play I wrote about my what it feels like to be an openly gay actor in this business and how it still is basically a, like a scarlet letter that you mm. are battling and so the place looks at a revival of a play that's happening on Broadway and the casting process of it and it's two people who play all the different characters how do you handle those situations as an actor what do you mean or like some of the things that you've run into that are the most I, frustrating they're hard I mean it's there's no way to handle it it's hard it's hard it's hard to it's it's hard for people who don't know what it feels like to to feel what it feels like 
when someone clocks your sexuality and you can feel the like helium bubble sink in mm. a room and I'm trying my play is sort of trying to pinpoint why that happens is it about sex appeal is it about gay men not being considered sexual beings or sexy in the way that straight men are like the way that the, the world reveres straight men and look, look, look to them for right. approval whatever the math of it is it causes if someone knows your sexuality it causes most people to to stop being interested hmm. and I don't know why and I'm trying to um, figure that out with this play but it, you know in the room like in my real life practically speaking I there's nothing I can do particularly as like it's wonderful that there's so much uh, focus on LGBT characters and queer characters in film and television and theater but the more popular it gets the less people are interested in queer and gay people playing those parts right and I don't think that they should be only playing that, but that's all we were allowed to play. And now that's not happening. So there's actually less and less and less because it's not, it's not like we're trading. It's not a trade system. It's just now the straight culture. There's not a stigma and these parts are so good and they're all like willing to like go to go down that road right. for three months and pushes the people out of out of the way that we're only allowed to do that when you are in that dark place are there any like concrete things that you reach for again and again to help you get out of it like books that you reread or music you listen to or things like that my dog i go dog. on long walks with her through yeah. the park i immediately if I'm feeling dark I reach out to a friend and try to get them to hang out I don't say I'm in a dark place help right. me out of it I'll be like what are you doing what are you doing let's go get do me something. out of my apartment <laughs> yeah let's go walk around it's walking being physical for me is a huge thing getting make sure, making sure I get enough sleep taking a nap because often like darkness for me or, or depression is related to lack of sleep and, mm. and, and, and my system being off in that way. Uh, sometimes I'll make lists. I'm a huge fan. Just like li looking, looking at something on a, just looking at it and being like, yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. What am I freaking out over? Or, you know, um, joining a, like actively doing something to change it either joining a, if I'm feeling frustrated say about auditioning I'll join an audition class or if I'm feeling lonely I'll reach out to somebody or if I'm feeling upset I will tell Michael about it I I, I think the best for me is to to activate it yeah in some way get it out. like reading a book is hard for me when I'm in a dark place because I can't pay attention I don't I can't be isolated when I'm that way um, and then the final question is, uh, have you seen anything lately of any art form that you want to recommend? 
I saw a really fabulous production of Tartuffe at Interlochen this really? last week, and it wow. was just so good. How fun! Partly because the director, who's a who, comes from the same skill set as Moni, who was our movement teacher at at Juilliard, um, she her play was presented in the style of like a Moni show, so it was very like tightened stylistic. Physical, sharp, angular performances, and it was you know it was like twenty people in the cast. It was just fabulous to watch, and that and I I just was shocked that that's what they're doing at this school. So that was really great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, What the Constitution means to me, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, so good. So good, and such an important piece of material right now to be like spoken about. So if you can't see it, get your hands on the play and read it. Um, I really like The Act on Hulu. I don't know about this. I don't know if I want to tell you about it. You just need to watch it. It's like it's like <laughs> this incredible true story about a mother who thought her daughter was ill. It's a true story. And raised her daughter as if she was ill. Oh, I have heard about this. It's like this. an eight-part miniseries, and it's just bananas. Okay. Yes, I have bananas. heard about this. And it's true. It's true. And there's a documentary um, about the true thing, and then there's also just like Googling about the true. Oh, my gosh. We just saw recently, and I'm going to get the title wrong. We saw the Mad, the Mad Ones show. Oh, uh-huh. I was uh, Mrs. Say, Mrs. Mrs. Mary's menagerie, Mrs. Marjorie's menagerie, Mrs. Mary's menagerie, or something. I need to get the title right. Mrs. Murray's menagerie. Mrs. Murray's menagerie. Did you like it? Mrs. Murray's menagerie. Um, yeah, we really liked it. Our friend Stephanie Wright Thompson is in that company, and their work is just so interesting and detailed and yeah. quiet. I really liked it. I want to go. I tried to get tickets, but the night that I wanted to go, I couldn't get the ticket to, and now I don't know if I can go. Because I missed their last show, the Mad One's last show. Yeah. Miles. Miles, Miles for Mary. Mary. A lot of M's. Miles, <laughs> Miles for Mary. Yeah. But I'm so excited for them. And it's a really, now that Ars Nova took over that space, the Barrow Street Theater, mm-hmm. um, it's a really good space for them, for this show. I'm also obsessed with the... Um, the whole like Nexium and Allison Mack um, cult drama that happened this past year. Do you know about this? This guy Keith Raniere, who is a part of Nexium, and he started this like subcategory of just like women to come study with him. And he was like the guru. Again, then, I'm gonna say, oh right, this thing. <laughs> And <laughs> now Allison I know, recognize Mack, what you're who's saying. Who's an actor who I was aware of as an actor? I've heard about this on a podcast. Oh my gosh, it's so good! And there's this great podcast called. Um, uh, and it's, it's like it's, a sex cult or something. It's a well, it's, it's a sex cult, and they were like, yeah, they were for like sex slaves or something. They were having. He was forcing them to have sex oh with them, God. but like they were willingly doing it because they were, you know, a year or two deep into this. Brainwashed. whatever this is and yeah and they were brainwashed and most of them are actors actresses who were looking for a way out of the dark side and he offered 
a place for that. And there's this great podcast podcast with uh, Can- CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, mm-hmm. a, with a woman, the woman who broke, uh, Laura Edmond, I believe is her name. She broke the story to the New York Times because she was a former member of the of the uh, cult. And him, the the podcast host and her, they ran into each other like almost a year before it broke in the news because she had just left the cult. And so he started interviewing her early on. And so during the, the, the podcast, the news breaks. So then you can also, you see like the buildup, you see it break, you see how then it's affecting wow. everyone. It's fascinating. Okay, I need to listen to that. It's a good podcast. <laughs> I think it's only like six episodes. They're like an hour long. So it's not even like terribly. Oh my goodness. It's really good. All right. Ryan, thank you so much. Thanks. Super delight. This was great. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Compass Podcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content, and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.